Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, I'm David Esau, and this is the C86 Show. Welcome, once again, to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Simon Barbar from the Chesterfield. So I've got that interview that I'll break up into, I don't know, three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your excitement, alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party on a roll, I think we should play your favourite of mine. This is Ask Johnny D. And that was pop perfection. Yes, the Chesterfields at their best, and that was Ask Johnny D. 
And that was a single that came out in 1987 on the Subway label. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show and this week's special guest. And we're very excited. We're basically hyperventilating here. Um, is Simon Barber from the band, who I spoke to a few weeks ago to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that kind of groovy stuff that happened back in the day when you were in, in an indie pop band. So... That interview is coming right at you very soon. But to get the exciting uh, admin out of the way, because I love a bit of admin, um, you can always contact me, us, here at the C86 Show on um, Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. You'll find it. And also all the shows have been archived, so you can find them on um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and also Mixcloud. And I've been doing this show for over two and a half years always with a special guest. So if there's any indie bop, pop bands you ever want to hear, then do check it out. Anyway, before we have the first part of our interview, I think we should have another track by the Chesterfields. And this is going to be completely and utterly another classic. Here, somebody told me nothing's changed for donkey's years. Oh, nothing changes, same old places. 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 Another fantastic single from that golden decade that was the 80s and the indie pop scene. Let's face it, the Chesterfields embodied the spirit of the C86 vibe. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. I know, great connection. And uh, this is the first part of my interview with Simon Barber from the band, who um, we had a chat a long chat, in fact, um, because they've got some live dates that are coming up in September, which you will find out about on this show, but not quite yet, because we began at the beginning, as you always should, in a good story, and about those early years of the Chesterfields. Simon, fill us in with the details, and don't forget, make notes, because I will test you at the end of the show. So we just 
sort of band together locally. Um, we'd never, um, sort of Davey and I had played in local bands um, and never even played in Bristol or anywhere like that, which is an hour away. We just had our local scene. Um, and sort of dreamt, just dreamt of playing in Bristol. Um, but we got lucky at the, it was like a peak time when, um, not a peak time, it was, it was when all the fanzines were happening and that the fanzine editors were also the promoters and were also putting on the gigs and some of them were in the bands too. And there was a big twang, um, I think it was a club in Brighton um, and they organised a, a, a magical mystery tour um, and ended up at a pub. I think they went via the Cern Giant, ended up in a pub in Temple Coombe um, in Somerset, and they they got the June Brides um, and the shop assistants booked to play this, this gig. Um, and they got in touch with our local fanzine writer, Steve Ball, um, to ask him to help organise it. And he said, oh, yeah, that's great, but I know this band's festivals, can they play too? Um, and so we went on first. And this coach trip, and also people came down from Bristol, Martin Whitehead came down, saw the Chesterfields, really liked it, and asked us if we wanted to do something on Subway. Um, and Johnny D was on that bus. He'd come from Brighton, asked us to go and play down in Brighton. So we started doing gigs like in Bristol and Brighton, and it just all sort of took off from there. We were just so lucky that at that moment, we were the we were the band in that position. But I mean, it's not it's not just luck. Obviously, um, it you know people liked us, and uh, Martin, in particular, was sort of willing to sort of risk putting something out by us because I think we were the um, it was the third release on the subway. Yes. Um, in fact, it was actually the second release because the second. The second release, the Soup Dragons, um, Subway Two was uh, was aborted, I think. Right. Um, and then they did. So I think so. I, was, I hope I'm remembering this right. I think there was Subway Four after our EP came out. Am I, am I getting that wrong? Or maybe we were five, seven, and eleven? Or I'm going to have to check. You know. Um, <laughs> well, we were right in it. The, the timing was just really good because shop assistants. Um, um, their EP on Subway, Subway One was doing really well in the indie charts, getting loads of airplay on John Peel, and um, and so we sort of followed followed on from that. Really, people being wanting to know what else was on was on the label, and of course Martin had his fans in plugging that. And then we got um, the opportunity to do a joint shared flexi with the shop assistants um, before we even had our. Actually, that was the thing that came first, but was distributed via a few fanzines. And the underground, the legends, and our local fanzine. Um, so yeah, thousands of those went out around the fanzine network. Um, and then when the EP came out, sort of people were wanting, sort of wanting to hear more. So yeah, I mean yeah, it's like you you were saying, you know, even a month or something earlier or a month later, and that might not have happened. So. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. And also, I mean, it was quite interesting because last year. There was a book that came out um, titled Rip, Torn and Cut, Pop, Politics and Punk Fanzines from 1976. And right. uh, there is a chapter on kind of that, not just the punk period, but really the indie period that was um, written by a Pete Dell. I don't know if you saw the book. It came out on Manchester University Press and it does mention the oh, Chesterfields right. and also that kind of whole scene that developed during oh, right. the... I didn't see that book. 
Well, God, you would love it. I mean, okay. and it, um, I'll, I'll give you more information towards the end of the, the, the interview. But yes, it okay. does mention that kind of the fanzine world that sort of built up from 1980 to 84, the first phase, really, and, and sort of the, some of the, yeah. char- the characters that were involved. And it wasn't just kind of, it was like the fanzine, and there was also the, the kind of maverick uh, record label kind of owners, people like, um, is it Alan Horn who, who sort of yeah. did the one in... Uh, postcard up in yeah. Scotland and then it was 53rd and 3rd and obviously yeah. there was the pink label and various other ones yeah. um, so the, there was a definitely something bubbling under the surface at that period but also yeah. sort of coming to the, the sound that you were making I mean what was the kind of the kind of I suppose, you know, what were the things that, you know, like we listen, you know, we hear that there's so Roland Stone's always talking about the blues. I mean, what was the kind of the members of the Chesterfields kind of digesting and, and getting excited about? Well, for me and Davey, it was the postcard thing. It was Orange Juice, but it was also bands that had gone before that, like the Monochrome set. Um, it's sort of like pure, um, more pure sort of sounds when, you know, the charts was full of big drum sounds and big hair and um, and that sort of thing. And I think it was just like a... We just, you know, we just wanted to make our own fun and we didn't feel like we were going to be a part of that. So it was just, um, yeah, I think it was the reaction to it, really. And I think the same with all the, all those gigs that were happening. And I don't think we were doing it to sort of have a success or anything. We were just doing it for ourselves and our friends and, and then just realised there were so many other people out there that sort of had the same idea, you know, still loved the Beatles and... Um, you know, that, you know, it was, it was very pop. It was about pop songs again, whereas I think cyclically things get... Um, you know, when successful bands run up songs, they make it about the production. Um, and so they think, like, production's going to save you, like on your second album, like Florence and the Machine or Haim or, you know, that sort of industry bands. Yes. Um, if they've run out of songs, they have to rely on the production, and that's just the end of it. Um, and I think a lot of that was happening at that time. Yeah. Um, Well, it it was interesting because, you know, going back to that period, I mean, I I can remember being really uh, kind of... I I missed punk, to be honest, and the post-punk scene. I was still a bit too young for it. And then you got that whole sort of... I suppose the club scene and, and all the face and everybody going to these very trendy clubs and being somebody yeah. who was very insecure um, at the best of times, something like that would, would have reduced me to a quivering wreck. And then, you know, then you had on one side, you had the big Top of the Pops production, Trevor Horn sound, and then you had this kind of, you know, the John Peel kind of stable of all these kind of yeah. like sort of quirky bands who all seem to be riddled with a sense of sort of insecurity and melancholia, which is probably my favourite emotion. So, yeah. so actually it wasn't difficult to like indie pop yeah. at that stage because it was like oh yes I can relate to this I'm not going to go in one of those kind of incredible holidays and sit on a yacht with lots of glamorous people because I, I would sort of want to cry and cry so um, so yes you were the soundtrack to our lives during the 80s you held us together really didn't you well I think uh, I think um, you know I really loved Davy's lyrics in the Chesterfields and I think they they said a lot of that um, insecurities and that trouble with girlfriends and all that sort of thing in the same way that you know like Morris has said that you know that stuff on the radio was saying nothing to him about his life and I think suddenly there were we were writing about what was happening and, and that is very true dear old Morrissey we love him 
Sometimes. Anyway, that's the first part of my interview with Simon Barber talking about uh, those early years of the Chessfields. But before we have any more chat, I think we should play another track by the band. This is taken from their first ever single that came out on a flexi disc, indeed, on Golden Pathway. This is Nose Out of Joint. Splendid. That's all we can say about that. It was an amazing song. Nose Out of Joint. That was a flexi disc that came out on a flexi disc, um, Golden Pathway, back in 1985. Yes, I'm obsessed with years here, aren't I? But, um, you know, it's nice to remember them. And uh, remember flexi discs. For some people, they probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, that was the single that launched the Chesterfields, who, as I mentioned, have got some live dates in September. And if you want to know any more information, they have got a very good Facebook page. Go and like them. They'll love you back. Anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Simon when I was talking about the dynamic of the band and those early years. And this was his answer. Simon, how did it all fit together? No, we were both sort of, um, we played in rival bands on this sort of oval post-punk scene, really. Davey was in a band with 
Deb Gooch from My Bloody Valentine and um, Chris Cole um, and Martin Herring, they were in this band called the Bikini Mutants. And then um, two of them, Chris and Martin, went to film school, so the band split up. I was in a band called um, Edward's Box um, and previously various other bands, including I was in a band called The Axe that John Peel had played in 1981. And it was, um, we'd both been playing in lots of bands the same, but never played together. And then suddenly a lot of people moved away or went to college or that sort of thing, university, because um, yoga isn't a university town. So that happens all the time with, with bands. And so I just, I phoned him up and said, um, should we get a band together? Um, and he said, well, yeah, come on around. And so, and I still don't know why. I went round. I didn't take my bass guitar. I just took around all my favorite records at the time. And we just sat and played records and um, just got really excited about the sort of band we wanted to to play and he played I remember some of the songs we played that and I remember him playing me Man of Sand you know the, the, the go between song and to go low C and just I hadn't heard that and he played it and he said this is this is great and then I was playing him um, I was playing him Sandy Shaw singing the Smiths and saying oh, we need to find a girl singer don't we and that was the plan that we were going to write these songs together and the first song we wrote was Girl on a Boat and there is a version, there are some recorded versions of us with our girl singer, Sarah. Um, there's actually, there's about eight songs by, recorded of Sarah and the Chesters, which might actually see the light of day, um, maybe later in the year. Um, so there's early versions of Chesterfield songs with Sarah singing them. Um, and then we did some recording, and we were recording What's Your Perversion, um, and... Sarah had to leave early to go and see her grandmother in Sherbourne. And so Dave was already singing the outro on that song. Um, and I think it was just someone just said, oh, well, Davey, why don't you just go in and do the, do the whole song? Because we've got some time. And he went in. It sounded great. And the rest of us were just looking at each other thinking, yeah, this is, what, <laughs> this is great. You know, and then so it was about, um, and we knew Sarah was sort of going to be going to architecture college at some stage and that sort of thing, probably like within the year. So we just, um, we what became, Davey became the singer, and then we were suddenly we were looking for a, a second guitarist. Right. Um, so that's how that was. It was never the plan. And I'd sung in my previous bands, but that was never something we thought we were going to do. It was just we were. I think we were quite fixed on the idea of having a girl singer to start off with, but then it was just, just so obvious, and Davey had started writing, because I wrote quite a lot of, quite a few of the early lyrics, and then Davey started writing, and then it was just obvious that his lyrics were so great that he just had to, so he just, he had a period when he just wrote so many of those lyrics, I think something was going on, it was early days of a relationship, and there was nice things coming out of that lyrically, um, and yeah, so yeah, so that, that's sort of really how how that all yeah that all happened. Yeah. And then did you? I mean, obviously you were sort of heading towards your first album, which was coming out in a few years later. That was eighty seven Kettle, wasn't yeah. it? So did um, during that period, obviously John Peel had started playing you because I always remember, yeah. I do remember him playing um, Ask Johnny D, obviously, and and the other one. Yeah. Um, 
Is it what's your perversion, isn't it? Because I remember him making some sort of comment when he played yeah, that. Yeah, he played that. And he, yeah, cause it wasn't, he didn't necessarily always play the song was like a lead song on something, like on an EP or something. He played that off the guitar and the bass EP. Yes. We got, we got, I mean, John Pell did, did play, play us, John Pell did play us quite a bit, but Janice Long played us almost every night for a while. Um, and uh, it was her support that sort of really um, sort of got, um, was bringing lots of people to our gigs. Because um, we, we never did a appeal session. We always wanted that. Um, we, did a, we did a couple of Janice Long sessions. Although by the time the second one out, went out, she wasn't doing her show anymore. Um, but yeah, so we missed out on that. I'd love to have done a John Peel session. He actually said to our manager that um, he didn't need to help us that much. I mean, he liked the band, but he didn't need to help us that much because Janice Long loved us so much, which is lovely to hear. Um, but a shame, but a shame. But so just kind of, um, just pause, pause in the sort of the chronolo chronology there. Yeah. I mean, is it the case then, as you mentioned, or slipped it in, that you've got material in the sort of the vaults or the loft probably in a box that, um, that you're sort of looking to bring out later on in the year that you've been tracking down? Well, we were going to, you see, our first single was going to be a song called Stephanie Adores, um, which has never seen the light of day. Um, and it was going to be on the Golden Pathway label, which was the label did some other stuff at that time. And it was our two friends, including Steve, um, Steve Ball, who did our fanzine, who was responsible for that gig that we was, I was just talking about. And he, um, we were going to do that single and, um, uh, on their label, and, but that was before Subway sort of came in, and then it was sort of we decided to go with, with Subway. But they'd been recording some songs earlier to put out of Sarah and Chesterfields, but then that didn't happen because we became the Chesterfields without Sarah. Yes. Um, so those, yeah, there are there are some songs in the in the vault. Um, yeah. So is it the I case like then that. that you're you're sort of looking to, um, yeah, sort of packages because the one thing I've noticed with quite a lot of people who have sort of come back and looked at their material and thought actually it'd be really nice to sort of get everything archived now and just have it out yeah. there um, and digitized and, and stuff yeah. like that so is that what a plan I think um, Graham who's the other chap who ran the Golden Pathway label he um, he has archived them and has digitized those songs and he started working on a, uh, a package he's also a, a brilliant graphic designer and illustrator. Um, he did all the stuff for the Golden Pathway, and he um, he has got um, plans to sort of release, release that at some stage, like a very limited edition. But it would be nice to get those online, uh, I suppose. I, I, I heard them again a couple of years ago, and I actually thought they were all right, you know, they're quite quaint. And, um, yes. Yeah, but they were better than I remembered them, really, a little bit slower and... <laughs> Um, yeah, because uh, Dom, Dom, our drummer, his early days of him drumming as well. It was because uh, he was, I think he was only about fourteen at the time. <laughs> yeah, so so sweet. So then, when you brought the album out, and obviously at that stage, I mean, the thing um, which was quite amazing was this kind of, I suppose, the the other concept I've sort of come come sort of to formulate in my mind has been the kind of gatekeepers, like you said, there was John Peel, there's also Janice Long, and the music papers as well alongside yeah. the fanzines but those music papers had huge circulations yeah. you know and and so a little mention or an interview or a big mention you know you you know for a lot of people and this is what i've sort of noticed is that 
especially now, it's quite difficult to get out of one's little community. So often people are playing in front of their friends and family and anybody yeah. else they can emotionally blackmail to see a gig. Whereas yeah. back then, if you got a couple of plays on John Peel, etc., or NME, you would then have that light, you know, possibility of being asked to go drive the other side of the country and play in yeah. Bristol, Glasgow, Leeds, Manchester, Norwich, Brighton. Yeah. You know, they, they, it sort of would develop in a slightly haphazard, but at least people were out there playing in front of complete strangers it, possibly even in, in front of 200 people in fact who yeah. even paid money so so did you know did you find that experience something that resonated with you oh yeah exactly i mean that was exactly what was happening to us we'd get a call saying do you want to come and support the june brides in leeds um and we wouldn't ask how much money we were going to get we didn't even check our diaries to see if we were working or not we just went and did it we that's that was our attitude um, luckily, uh, and Don was still at school, um, and we took him out of school several times, and his <laughs> parents were very supportive, considering. Um, um, yeah, no, we just, and, and that was always, and then just got disappointed by the bands that sort of came came along later, who did start asking, how much money did we get? And um, I, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, these are Thatcher's kids. Um, but we we were still punk rock. We were still... We just wanted to be out there doing it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we got 50 quid playing with June Brides in Leeds, and that was, wow, that was amazing. I, mean, I don't know if that covered it, but it was, that was... Um, and yeah, and people were there who'd come to see us as well. So that was, that was a shock as well. You know, singing along to songs that were on the, that first EP. It was, yeah, everything changed pretty quick, I think, then. And we were only supposed to be doing... We were only going to do two singles on Subway, um, we did completely and utterly and go on about, and then I think we were thinking about either doing something on the Golden Pathway or doing something ourselves. But then Martin heard us, Johnny D, and said he wanted to do an album. Um, he thought we had an album, and particularly he wanted that song to be to get that song out as a single as soon as possible. So yeah, that was a, that was another turning point. That song, which was never meant to be a played at more than one gig anyway. It was just we just did it at a Johnny D's birthday gig in in Brighton. Um just I, I wrote it in a hurry. <laughs> and um yeah, just and then it just yeah, it went down the storm and that somehow a tape got back to Martin of that gig and uh yeah, so that that changed a few things as well. Well yes. I mean I still listen to Ask Johnny Dean. It does oh. I mean, lyrically it's such a classic song. Well, I, I, yeah, I think it wrote itself. <laughs> it's just I knew Johnny D, and it was just, that was, it was just, uh, just, yeah, that's, uh, it happens a lot, doesn't it? Like, that was probably the quickest song I've ever written. Right. I had the, Davey and um, the first guitar part, which is, uh, which is also Echo Beach, apparently, that Davey and Brendan had left, left me with a tape with that on, um, just playing it round and round, and, couldn't think of anything to do with it. So I said, they said, do you want to have a go? Because at that point, I wasn't singing any songs in the set. Davey was singing all the songs. That was the jazz feel. And Brenda and I would be stepping up and do backing vocals and that sort of thing. Um, and so it wasn't really that odd that I would sing it at Johnny D's sort of birthday gig. Um, and so we did it. And, um, yeah, and Davey was so cool about it, like, putting it out as a single. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he wasn't thinking he should be singing all the songs. Or like, he didn't have that sort of ego. He really liked. Um, and then when my brother joined later, the three of us each taking songs, 
and, and I'm understanding that a lot better now because I'm I'm singing most of the songs now. And when we played with Andy Strickland, I get a song off when he sings. He does um, the Caretaker Race song in the set. And it's my it's my favourite bit of the set because I can just play the bass and uh, step back a bit. The complexities of life in a band. It is very up and down, but all worthwhile, especially for us indie pop fans. Anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Simon, talking about those life life together in the Chesterfields. But I think we should break it up with some more music. This is going to be taken um, from a single uh, towards the end of the 80s. This is Fool is a Man.
that's Fool is a Man from the Chesterfields. And you have to admit, they did write classic indie pop songs. I mean, as, as songs go, you couldn't fault them. Anyway, that's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. And I think that's good enough. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And without sounding too desperate, but sometimes I do, I can cope. Um, you can contact me, you know, as long as it's nice and uh, friendly and creative and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Just go and see your therapist. But you can on social media. You can go to Twitter. Facebook, just go to at C86show. I, I am there and it's always nice to hear from you. Otherwise, um, you can hear any of the shows that I've archived via my incredible, um, yes, two and a half years of doing it. And that's via Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. It's all good and uh, fascinating. Well, I do. I think so. So that's good enough. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Simon, where I ask that incredibly interesting question and a little bit embarrassing, but um, I think I'll keep it in. This is um, when I said, who is Johnny D? I think uh, at the time I was uh, thinking I should know this, but I don't, but I don't care. I'm, I'm good to admit it. Here it is. Simon, who is Johnny D? So Johnny D um, <laughs> putting gigs on in... Brighton at that time, right? Um, and he was running a club and a fanzine called Especially Yellow. Um, and he loved us, and he put out sort of tapes and mixtapes and shared them. And he always had Chesterfield songs. And he came up here and sort of recorded the rehearsal, and he just just loved us. Um, and and we loved him. <laughs> and so that that's how that sort of sort came about, really. But through that through that song. Record Mirror, who were our biggest supporters supporters in the music press. Um, I think Completely and Utterly was single of the week, and Johnny D got an amazing rave review. And, um, and that was also how we met Andy Strickland, because he was writing for Record Mirror, um, as well as playing for The Loft and The Caretaker Race. Um, we, um, yeah, he was, he came to the attention of Record Mirror's editor, um, who contacted him and asked him if he wanted to write for Record Mirror. And so he started writing for Record Mirror and then moved to London. Um, and that was the start of his career in sort of music journalism. And he, you know, ended up writing for The Guardian and lots of other, you know. So that song, as he, as he, was, he um, his daughter was at the, um, the 100 gig we did, the 100 club gig a few years ago. And he, he, he introduced me to his, I hadn't met his daughter for years. And he said, oh, um, come over and say hello. And uh, he said to her, um, you wouldn't be here if, if, if this man hadn't written a song about me in 1987. So, wow. It's, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit of a... And she just stood there looking like, you know, her mind being blown. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> Amazing moments. So then, you yeah. do, you know, on that in, in 87, which was kind of almost the height of indie pop, really, in a way, you brought out those two albums which was Kettle and then that kind of collection of, of kind of material. Oh, yeah. And then sort of what then happened as we turned the, the, into the new year and 88 appeared? Because obviously, did things start to alter as you sort of had to um, not pick yourself up, but just go to the next level? Well, we were between guitarists. Um, Andy Strickland had helped us out and Rodney Ellen had helped us out. Um, and then my brother joined. Um, moved back down from, and who, Davey and I knew Mark, well, obviously I knew him well, because he was my brother, but Davey knew him well, and um, that sort of worked out. And also the thing that happened at the same time was Revolver Distribution in Bristol um, 
asked us if we wanted to do our own label and said they would fund it. Um, and we wouldn't have to recoup on it or anything like that. And so they so they helped us set up household. Um, and and so yeah, so everything changed at that point. So we quite enjoyed um, you know, enjoyed doing that and sort of um, did the second album. Um, yeah, that year. Um, and then it all later in that year, it sort of after the album came out, um, it sort of fell apart really. When well, well Davey left the band, but Mark and I. Um, we sort of carried on, sort of fulfilled all our commitments um, because we were playing so many gigs and we were we were with an agency by then, so we were playing lots of colleges and universities and we were doing a European tour every year and things things like that. So we just kept going um, until, like you were saying earlier, things have their time um, and I think Baggy happened and lots of bands around us, like the Soup Dragons, are suddenly changing their sound and adding the baggy beat to sort of stay um, contemporary. And Pixies and Dinosaur Jr. were happening, and suddenly you think, oh, oh that's it now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, but and our manager at the time, I think, um, I mean, you, can, you know, in hindsight, it's, things are obvious, but he, he probably went, because Davey left the band because his, his girlfriend got pregnant, um, and they um, they bought a house, um, and he just wanted to step up and do the right thing, um, and thought that meant he couldn't be in the band anymore because we were so busy. Um, and uh, I think um, our manager should have said, "Stop, stop for six months, take stock," and then um, I, I know that if we'd done that, that. You know, with the day would have stayed in the band and we'd have gone on to do a third album. Yeah, it might have, you know, been quite different, but it would have, you know, the band would have carried on. But we were just on that, um, on that sort of merry-go-round. And it, you know, the, the gigs after Davey left went really well. People liked to line up with us, sort of co-fronting. It didn't feel like it was it, we weren't giving a good account of ourselves, which also that helps me now because, obviously, without Davey. Um, because um, he's no longer with us, um, uh, I'm hoping that we do give a, a good account of ourselves. But then we did do it without him, you know, for, for sort of six months. Yeah. Um, you know, then anyway, that time. But he was, um, he was such an amazing, charismatic frontman. As far as I was concerned, it was, uh, yeah, it just, it just became very different. Did you? Um, and then drummers uh, started changing, and guitarists started changing. It just didn't. It stopped feeling like a. You know, like a, a band, and I, I think I really enjoyed writing songs with Davey because we just fought to get things on each other's songs, and I think we both added things to each other's songs that sort of made them more than the sum of the parts. And I wasn't that wasn't happening with me and my brother. No, you were you were basically the the McKenna, um, Paul McCartney and John Lennon of indie pop. There, yeah, there's a, there was yeah, I do think that. I think he had the. I think I had the. Um, he had the one-liners and the lyrics and the attitude, and I definitely had the, the, the melodies and the um, yeah, the maybe softer, simpler things. I mean, I'd, I'd love to be able to write lyrics like his, but he, you know, he did he did really. So uh, we went to he um, helped me as a, as a sort of song like lyric writer, and that it, so they had to be because he'd set such a high standard. It was. Uh, 
um, I had to sort of um, step up really and um, yeah play the same game. Yes, well, that kind of creative tension does have you know. And now and now I just I hold it up. Uh, everything I write now, I think I think would that have been good enough for Dave? Yes. <laughs> so is, because um, because when you did your third album, Crocodile. Crocodile Tears, which was on yeah. Household Label. I mean, that was your third album. And by then, you'd also got what um, Rob Ellis, who went on to be PJ Harvey's drummer. Yeah, as well. Well, he he doesn't play on that album, but he did play for us when we toured that album, and then he played on the record after that, after Davey had gone. We still had Dom drumming on on Crocodile Tears, um, but the drum sound is bigger and it's a bit more of a contemporary sound, I think. Um, which I think we thought at the time was was okay, but now I I I tend to think it, it's slightly overproduced that album. I still you know really like it, and people still say really nice things about it. But um, yeah. yes, because also I mean the strange thing is that's not that strange, but because with a lot of people when they finish music they have a real break. But you did a, you, all of you did sort of go in go on to form other bands, didn't you? you, you yeah. Thought, you formed, and your brother formed, and even Davey formed another couple of bands. So, so obviously, yeah. did that feel a bit strange when you were with a different outfit, thinking, oh, actually, why didn't we just keep together? Or did you just feel like you needed a break? I think we needed a break. I think we wanted to do... A, I mean, Davey never really got out of Yeovil with his next bands. Um, he didn't have the drive to do more than that, really. He wrote some nice songs, Um uh, some of which have been recorded by by various people and worked with lots of different people. But Mark and I, um, Mark had moved to Bristol, so it wasn't possible. And I think it was we were never going to be a band in a band together, me and Mark again. I don't think because of the way that we both write songs. In that I write, so I write a bass line that has a melody line, and it would be sort of fairly complete, but missing all the music. Uh, and I will need to work with um, people who who can sort of um, come up with great ideas to go go with that. Whereas Mark's, Mark really knows what he wants a song to sound like, so he'll know what the other parts need to sound like. And and it's just it's just a different way of working. We both you know both work, um, but what that meant was that we couldn't really write together. And that was that was so much more disappointing for me than it was for him. I think. Um, so he went on and did great or, or great and um, for a few years, um, and I did Passenger for a few years, which you know we went well. We did Radio One session and toured Europe and did things and uh, um, yeah. So, but yeah, uh, we didn't. None of us really stopped. We're all still obsessed with music and being in bands. But I don't know if you do stop. No. We had friends who did stop. We had friends who put their guitars in, in their attics and just stopped. I mean, I, my bass is, I'm looking at it now, it's always there. I always pick it up, like, before I go to bed, you know. It's just, it's just, um, yeah, it's just what I do. And thank God you do, Simon. We are grateful for that. Anyway, that's the third part of my interview with Simon Barber from the Chesterfields. As I keep saying, between each link and hopefully... You're not going to say, God, I wish you'd stop saying that, but um, never mind. Anyway, this is going to be a little bit more music because I think we should break it up with some quality indie pop from the golden decade that was the 80s. It's true. Anyway, I remember John Peel playing this because I remember something along the line of him saying at the end of it, 
I'm a bit too old for that kind of thing. Or something a bit like that. I'm paraphrasing. But anyway, this is What's Your Perversion? Incredible. We just can't get enough of the Chesterfield today. That is the track titled What's Your Perversion? Um, God knows when that came out and in what, on what album. But um, yes, I remember John Peel playing it and that's good enough for me. I'm having a Proustian flashback. I probably will need some hydrocortisone for that. But anyway, never mind. This is going to be the next part of the interview where I was talking about, yes, I remember that fascinating label called Vinyl Japan. And uh, yeah, they hoovered up an awful lot of indie pop bands, and I found them fascinating. Um, yes, I should get out more. But anyway, this was um, Simon's response to me talking about his Vinyl Japan period with the band. Simon, take it away. There was a third new album, and not so, well, it was the fourth album, sort of technically, but we did Flood, the fourth album. But that was Vinyl Japan wanting an album of new material, um, and we said yes, but could we come and play in Japan as part of the deal? So he he said yes, paid for the recording and paid for us to fly over, and we toured um, Japan with TV personalities, which was brilliant fun. Um, so we reformed for that, but then we came back, we did a few gigs, and then it sort of stopped, really. I think for some of those same reasons that I wasn't going to be at a band with my brother anymore, Davey had to get back to sort of real life. Um, I think he moved out of Goebel soon after that moved to Brighton. Um, yeah, and we just got back to it. It was just like a... Um, and then it was it was a while before um, Cherry Red re- released a compilation with the, the best of. Um, and how did that feel, sort of, because obviously, you know, you'd 
had closed the door, you did your Ziggy Stardust, and then coming back together, did you have that moment where you all had to sort of meet in a room or a pub and say, hi, this is it, we're going to Japan, do make sure your passports are in date? <laughs> yeah, it was a bit like that. We sort of... We... We wanted to make sure the album was going to be good, so we got together and played each other. It's Flood's essentially an album of sort of three different songwriters, and then the other two adding their bits to that, that person. So it's like um, it's not as collaborative as the other albums. And um, some of the songs on there, what I, I was doing with my other band, Davey done a few of the songs with his other band and Mark brought some songs that he'd been playing around with. It was, it was, it was that sort of album. I think it sounds coherent um, considering there's three different people singing um, on it. And uh, I think as we recorded that with um, Head who um, does Polly Harvey's sound and recorded her first album. So we recorded it in Yeovil at his studio. Um, and I think he just did a great job and he just got a great atmosphere in the studio. He, he, um, yeah, so we just it just felt really nice being together again. But it didn't feel like it was. Oh, here we go again. We're gonna we're gonna carry on. It did feel like a um, just like a little you know have some fun, go to Japan, and then come back, maybe do a couple of gigs, and then that was it. It never felt like oh we're we're going concern again. Yeah. Which is weird because now um, the sort of the response to us going out and doing this tour. And people saying, is there going to be new material? And um, and the agent saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's, 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 you know, if the tour goes well, then I'd like to do more. And then there's opportunities of playing, you know, summer festivals next year. You start thinking that, and then they say, oh, yeah, maybe you should try and get some new material out of that. Suddenly you think, oh, yeah, there's, there's, suddenly there's an audience for it again. And it's not just um, or the the balding middle-aged men who look like ourselves that are in the audience. That so like we played in um, Preston and Manchester sort of a couple of years ago, and like half the audience were people who sort of discovered us on YouTube, and they were they were all singing along. It was uh, it's quite a shock. Well, it probably was, but it shouldn't have been because the Chesterfields did create perfect pop perfection. That's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. Anyway, as I said, they have got dates in September coming up. So if you want to find out any more information, if you go to Facebook, I know they've definitely got a, the Chesterfields page there. And uh, they start on the September the 17th, running through to September the 22nd. There might be more. Just keep checking it out and like them. They'll probably like you for that. Anyway, look, we'll play some more music. This is Goodbye Goodbye. Someone to believe and actually live for 
song great production what more what more is there in life anyway that is uh, the Chesterfields and goodbye goodbye this is going to be my final part of the interview and a bit of an extended part uh, with Simon Barber talking about uh, yes that tricky moment when uh, yes the passing and the death of Dave Goldsworthy and this is it Simon take it away I'd seen him a few weeks before which is I hadn't seen him for a while and then I saw him a few weeks before, and we had a really lovely talk about our relationship and what great fun it had been, it, which this sounds really weird, in, you know, thinking about it afterwards. Um, and I took him to the station. We hugged and kissed in the car because um, um, he can be quite demonstrative when he's um, sort of happy. And... Um, and then next week I got the phone call saying, um, yeah, he'd been involved in a hit and run in Oxford. It was just terrible. And it's all pre, um, well, early days of, I think we were emailing at that point, but it was obviously a long time before um, we were all using mobile phones and social media and everything. So it was like landlines and just everybody phoning everybody. Um, I was told by a chap I was telling you about, the same guy, um, Howard, Head, who um, he said, had you heard, he'd heard, and had I heard, and uh, suddenly all these people think, oh, Simon's got to know. And then I felt like it was, and also it was, it kept me busy. I felt like I needed to let as many people know as possible, and spoke to his mother straight away, um, um, and organised a, a gig, and so all his friends came from all over and we played and everyone played and um, a Japanese friend came over and DJed especially and it was just um, 
who sort of celebrated his life and his his family came and um yeah we and um yeah we scattered his ashes on a hill in Yeovil and there's a bench up there um that his his mother commissioned on a hill overlooking Yeovil um and so yeah we go up, go up there every now and then I go up every time a Japanese friend comes as well and I, I'd you know I go up there with my daughter and uh, you know, and then so yeah, so I uh, know it's just just really really awful. And it, I know I would have worked with him again, and I know I would have wanted to play him stuff. And I know that, um, yeah, no, it was just really really dreadful dreadful news. And then the, the, the funeral was, there were people couldn't get in, so many people that was in Oxford. Um, and his mother asked me to choose the music for the funeral. Oh my God. Um, which was, uh, yeah, it just felt like this incredible honour. Um, so the, the coffin came into pop anarchy, um, um, which people did think was appropriate. And, it was like, cause it was that, and then um, but there was an instrumental that we wrote called The Berlin Walk. I don't know why we wrote it. It's totally unlike the Chesterfields. Um, uh, it's sort of like an Eastern European spy theme. Um, I don't know if you've heard it, um, but it's like an extra track on um, on Flood, or it might have been on a 12-inch, it might have been on 12-inch uh, done by the Wishing Pool. Um, but we played that for the, the committal, for, for the coffin disappearing, and it was just suddenly, we. it was like, I was saying to my brother, I said, that's, that's why we wrote that, and now I want that, I want that, that played at mine, hopefully in a long time, but... Uh, um, yeah, but it was, yeah, it was just, um, yeah, it was such a shock. And, um, yeah, yeah, and I went to see Davy's mum and his brother when the idea of us doing the Chesterfields again came up. Um, because we were doing gigs as design, playing the songs of the Chesterfields, because I didn't really want to reform the Chesterfields without Davy. Um, and we did. And they, will get, they went really well. And then the guy from New York Pop um, Festival um, got in touch and said, did we want to play? Because he knew we'd done these gigs. But he'd have to bill it as the Chesterfields. Would that be okay? Um, so I, I went to see Davey's brother, Tim, and just sounded him out, sounded out his mother, and said, look, we're doing this. I'd sounded her out earlier, but I said, uh, and they just thought it was great that we were going to go over there and do Davy's songs. And I hadn't sort of... Because I just wanted to... Um, just do... I just want to do the memory of the Chesterfield, do it, you know, right. I've got to want to get it right. Um, but it went really well in New York. And um, I think, you know, I've had enough people telling me that it, um, you know, it is the Chesterfields. And Andy Strickland, you know, really makes it, um, you know, makes it authentic because he... Um, he played our biggest Chesterfield ski back in night. We played Glastonbury Festival in, I think it was 80, I think it was 87. And um, he, he was the guitarist then. So it felt, um, you know, authentic. I think without Andy, I'd, I'd feel like we were a Chesterfield's covers band or something. But I don't feel that now. And I think if this lineup's going to record like a new album for, for next year, then um, um, it'll be just a, like another version, but hopefully respecting the, the, the catalogue. Yes. And is that um and is with the current Chesterfields, is it you, Andy, Strickland, Helen? Helen, 
Stickland, yeah, Andy Strickland, Helen Stickland. Uh, um, no relation, not married, even though it's, it says in various places online that they're a couple. Um, yeah, and Rob, Rob Perry on drums. Right, because yeah, so, you've um, you, you've been together now, off and on. You know, for yeah. quite a few years. So this has been the lineup for a while. This is, maybe this lineup has existed longer than any previous lineup. Yes. I've done it. but we haven't done much. But uh, yeah, we we get on really well. The, the four of us got on so well um, on the little tour um, we did a couple of years ago. And when we went to New York together, we just had a ball and just yeah, I, I yeah, love them. Yes, and, this is and good. Bob can do. Uh, Rob the drummer so can do you know he's it's helps me um on the org- organizational front um so he's organizing uh accommodation and he's going to drive the minibus um some of the tour and that sort of thing and that's that's so great to have someone else doing that because normally it's it's me organizing all that or sort of and so if you if you're sharing that part of the, part of the job with someone that's um yeah yeah it makes quite a difference but um, because because this tour that you've got coming up throughout September, obviously there's some great moments that you're going to sort of be meeting people from your past, including yeah. um, Rodney Allen, who's going to be a support actor yeah, as well. Yeah, he's playing a couple of gigs. He'll get up and play with us a, a couple of gigs. He's doing the 100 Club, and then he's doing the Bristol gig. Um, yeah, so he's coming out of retirement. He's done a couple of things lately, and he has played with Blue Airplanes again recently. They played... Glastonbury last weekend, so he's um, yeah he's he's started doing things again. But yeah, it's going to be great having him at the Hundred Club. But I'm really excited that we've we've persuaded the Waltones um, to come out of um, retirement and play at the Hundred Club as well because they were one of my favourite bands. We did a few gigs with them um, at the time um, before Mark um, Collins, guitarist. I, I think when they split up, he went on to he he's in the Charlatans now. He's sort of a, um, sort of, uh, um, so to, to sort of get them to come and do that is um, is brilliant. And yeah. I know you were quite surprised because I think you once said that you probably wouldn't do what you're doing now because it's I don't know the moment's gone and that experience with Davy. But um, yeah. but so so I just wondered what had sort of changed and shifted for you to sort of sort of feel so connected back with the the Chesterfield again. I think it's people. I think it's other people convincing me. Um, yeah, it takes. Yeah, I think the rest of the band have convinced me. Um, and um, yeah, everyone's just so positive about it. And but if you know, if Davy's family are positive about it, that that helps me. And. Just got all these. We've got all these songs now that sound like they could be Chesterfield songs that are happening. Andy said the last time I spoke to him, he said, oh, "I got a little tune." He said, it "Sounds like a Chesterfield tune." So we're going to work on that. And we, Helen and I, have got a couple of tunes that we think, um, um, sort of like a new song called "Bite Size" that we think is going to be a very Beatly Chesterfield um, song to go on this if we do this sort of um, album next year. So yeah, it's it's. But I'm getting excited about it. I think that's why. You're sort of excited about working and recording an album, and yes. um, and we've got some studio time at a studio local to us down here. So yeah, that's 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 the plan. That is um, a good that is a good plan. And do you? Yeah. I mean, as you probably noticed, in the last few years, 
a lot of bands have, not a lot, but quite a few bands have got films that have come out. There was the one on The Wedding Present, The Chills, yeah. The Go-Betweens. Oh, the Go-Betweens film was brilliant. I loved that. And, and so do you sort of also sometimes, I don't know if you've got enough material, but do you think actually we, you know, does that sort of also sort of push your mind or brain to think, oh, that, that is... I thought about that. I mean, I thought that when I was watching The Go-Betweens just had documented some... We not not much as far as I know, not much is documented with us. Um, got a few. I've got a few um, London gigs on video, and obviously we've made a couple of videos. I've got a load of footage. We've started making a video for Sweet Revenge, but never finished mixing it. And I've got that on. I think that's been digitised, and that if I or someone's got some time, they could put together a little video with that or something. But there's not enough, I don't think, to yes. sustain. A, a, a film or a, like a documentary um, and that is a shame and that is also the end of the show a big thank you to Simon Barber for giving me the time for that interview and um, yes really appreciate it and um, sadly I'll have to say goodbye this has been David Esau this has been the C86 show um, I could tell you how you can contact me but I have already and if I do it a third time that does sound really desperate so anyway have a great week this is going to be Fountain of Youth and like I said if you're a Chesterfields fan fill your boots this has been Solid Gold Easy Action and um, as I said and I'll plug it one more time go to see their Facebook page and find out about their live dates and hopefully new material happening sometime soon anyway have a good week So uncertain of what I can remember now. The summer's long since gone, and we're deep into December. On the way to discovering the truth, I had a bath in the fountain of youth. If I was out there looking for proof, I think I found it. Usually stoned, I stumble. Into the bedroom and I draw back the curtains I look out the window On the way to discovering the truth I had a bath in the fountain of youth If I was out there looking for proof I think I found it and I think I like it Do you mind if I follow you down the path? That says nothing to lose, everything to gain is my pain. I never want to get misguided again. I know that I know that I will. So keep taking the pills, yeah, I know that I will. Taking the pills and things will get better Out of the mainstream traffic Into a different flow I think you should always know Of sense of purpose 
On the way to discovering the truth I had a bad in finding a youth If I was out there looking for proof I think I found it and I think I like it Do mind if I follow you down the path That says nothing to lose Everything to gain Release my pain I never want to get misguided again I know that I Know that I will. So keep taking the pills. Yeah, I know that I will. Keep taking the pills and things will get better. Things will get better. Things will get better